Welcome back to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. We're so privileged to have commercial real estate veteran Bob Knackle here with us today. Bob, it's a pleasure having you on. Thank you again for doing this. John, great to be here with you today. And so you started in the commercial real estate industry completely by accident back in 1981. Uh, So take us back uh, when you were freshman at Warden and walk us through your journey in CRE. Absolutely, John. I, I feel so lucky. You know, I love this business so much. Selling business, built, <laughs> selling buildings, I think, is the coolest thing in the world. Right. And uh, I got into the business completely by accident, as you said. Uh, 1981, I'm a freshman at the Wharton School. Want to be the next Gordon Gecko like every other Wharton kid. Um, so I put a resume together during spring break of freshman year. I grew up in Bergen County, New Jersey. So I'm driving around Bergen County looking for commercial banks and investment banks mm. to drop my resume off at. Uh, I'm in Hackensack. I came out of a Payne Weber office across the hall. I saw a Coldwell Banker. I thought the place was a bank. <laughs> Went in, gave them my resume. Later that day, they called me, said, we'd like to interview you for a summer job tomorrow. Set up the interview. Uh, this is 1981, so there's no internet. So right. I go to the library that morning, look up this at bank to find out a little bit about them. And when I saw it was a real estate company, I almost didn't go on the interview. Uh, but lucky for me, they were the only ones who were hiring college kids for the summer. Took the job working in their data bank program, which mm-hmm. was doing market research. Um, and then uh, took the job, loved it. It was a young, hardworking bunch of folks who were making a lot of money. Uh, and I thought it was the coolest thing. I went back my next summer and ran that market research group. And then my third summer, I went back and got my New Jersey real estate license mm-hmm. and was showing industrial space uh, for a broker at the time, Tom Mullaney, who is still a good friend of mine to this day. Um, and then I started with with CB, which Colwell Banker Commercial was the predecessor company mm-hmm. to CBRE. So I, I came into the city, started with, uh, with CB when I got out of school in 1984. That's awesome. That's amazing. And I want to understand where you kind of first developed your sense of business. So if you had to think back to the first time you remember selling something, what comes to mind? Well, actually, my first sales job uh, was uh, was selling candy out of a cardboard storefront in my my aunt's uh, dining room. Okay, uh, they had gotten me for one Christmas. I forget whether I was seven or eight, but they got me a cardboard storefront. And uh, the gimmick that I had was I actually went to the store to buy candy right. for the, the cardboard store that I made my aunts pay for. And then I sold them the same candy that they bought for me. <laughs> so I had actually a good gig. My cost of goods sold was zero yeah. <laughs> uh, and I made good profits. But that was my my first sales job, followed up by uh, having a very, very robust business of shoveling snow on mm. snow days. Um, I remember being a kid, nine, 10 years old, 11 years old, uh, you know, making a hundred bucks shoveling snow for people. But I loved snow days. I got up early, went out and, uh, you know, shoveled as many driveways and and sidewalks as I possibly could uh, to make a couple of bucks, which is kind of a a sales job in itself. That's true. So what do you think you'd be doing career-wise if not commercial real estate? You know what? I've been asked that question a lot. What would you do if you weren't selling real estate? I have no idea. I really have no idea. I love this job so much. I've always loved it. I I feel blessed that I still love the job as much today as I did when I started. Um, But I actually have no idea what I would be doing if I wasn't uh, selling buildings. That means you're in the right place, (laughs) for sure. So you founded uh, your firm, Massey Knackle, uh, uh, with Paul Massey back in 88. Um, How did you decide whose name comes first? We, uh, We flipped quarters in the lobby of the Waldorf Astoria. Uh, We had um, 
uh, three quarters. Uh, we flipped them. I won the first flip. Uh-huh. Paul won the next four in a row. It was best four out of seven. Right. Uh, and we're thankful that it actually ended up that way because at least now it sounds like it flows much better, Massey Knackle, <laughs> than Knackle Massey would have would have been. But right. it was a, it was a coin flip. That's awesome. That's so that's so funny. And so uh, your office was set up uh, like a trading floor. Can you kind of give us the reasoning behind this? Yeah, we for my entire uh, MK career, uh, we always sat in a bullpen mm. uh, in cubicles. And the reason behind it was that we wanted to uh, not only have uh, the folks who were around us hear what we were saying, but we wanted to hear what they were saying. Right. Uh, and I think that is uh, something that um, you, if you grow up in that environment, it's very easy to do. Um, when I got to JLL, um, I was encouraged to take an office and I begrudgingly went into an office. Uh, I've been in an office now for a while and I find I close my door a lot because even a little bit of distraction right. actually bothers me. So I think it, it's, it would be impossible for someone who's always been in an office to go into a bullpen. But because I grew up in the bullpen, uh, I was completely used to it. I could block out all kinds of sounds yeah. around me. Um, but uh, it, it was it was great for information sharing. And I think it it really allowed our younger people to get up the learning curve mm very quickly because often somebody would come over and said, Hey, you just told this guy this, why did you say that? And why didn't you say this? And, uh, it was, uh, a, a great, uh, way to share information with people. Right. And would you say for young people, it's kind of like a fast track to get to, um, that level because they can hear so many different conversations going on all at once. Absolutely. And I, I think that's one of the, the, um, the really unfortunate things about the pandemic with people working from home, if you're on a Zoom, you don't absorb so much of the stuff that you could absorb in this ecosystem of work by just being there. Maybe you're getting a cup of coffee or maybe you're in the men's room even and you're just, you're overhearing a conversation or you're saying hi to somebody, asking them about a transaction and you, you learn so much by osmosis just by being around people. And I think for the time that people have been working from home, they're not getting the benefit of that. So I think, um, for senior people, like I, I, myself working from home during the pandemic, I actually found that I was much more productive because mm. I didn't have interruptions during the day. Right. You know, I don't know if you're a Seinfeld fan, but I think what I, I discovered was the stop and chat actually eats up a lot of time. Sure, you know, somebody does. comes over and says, how was your weekend? Before <laughs> you know it, 12 minutes has gone by. Um, so I was much more productive at home, but I think for, for young people who are trying to learn not being in an office environment is really debilitating mm. and flattens the learning curve quite a bit. Right, that makes sense. And uh, why did you decide to sell Massey Knackle in 2014? Um, well, we actually decided to sell Massey Knackle in t- 2007. Okay. Um, and uh, we, the intention of growing the company was that we wanted to create something that we could grow and sell. Mm. That was the intent. So everything we had done uh, during the 26 years and 46 days that we ran that business was to create a valuable business that could be sold. Um, Neither Paul or I came from extravagant backgrounds. This was everything we had. Uh, You know, in the early years, we ran the business for several years on credit cards, um, almost went bankrupt three times. And... um, 
you know, we got the business to a nice critical mass. And in 2007, um, we were approached by one of the big firms wanting to buy us. Mm. Uh, we hadn't thought about it. They made a very intriguing offer. Uh, for a number of reasons, that transaction didn't happen. Uh, but what it did teach us was that when we did sell the company, we would be on five-year contracts. Mm. Uh, so in 2007, we said, all right, well, we're going to be on these five-year contracts. What's the perception of the value of these contracts going to be? Wouldn't it be better if we're in our 50s for those five mm. years and if we were in our 80s for yeah, those five sense. years? So we said Paul was turning 55 in 2015. So we said, you know what? Let's see what the market's like in 2014. If the market is okay, if it's not really in the tank, we should really think about selling. So uh, we didn't sell in 07. And then we go through 20, 2008 and 2009, right. almost go bankrupt again um, and come out of it. 2010, things start getting better. 2014 was in in. Uh, serendipitously was the best year ever in New York City real right. estate. 5,534 buildings sold that year. Yeah. That was an all-time record by more than 10%. So we have this unbelievable year. Uh, we go out, we hire an investment bank. Uh, it had a lot of interest. Uh, Cushman and Wakefield, unbeknownst to us, was teeing the company up for a larger sale of the whole company, uh, needed to have a little bit more uh, of a presence in the New York City capital market. Mm. So they bought us. Uh, it was a, a great deal for us. Um, the timing just worked out perfectly in, in retrospect, but it wasn't because we were so smart or because we had any grand plan. It was all about what our perception right of the marketplace's interpretation of those five-year contracts were going to be. So it was actually decided many years before I that see. that would be the right time to sell. And it just happened to be the absolute perfect time to sell. Understood. Okay, got it. And how has the, the world of investment sales brokerage um, changed since you started? What worked for a broker 30 years ago, does that still work today? I, John, it's a completely different world. Let me, let me take you back to me sitting at my desk okay. in 1984. Uh -huh. um, no computer. No cell phone, no fax machine, uh, rolls of quarters in the desk because when you'd go out to show a building you'd and somebody didn't show up, you'd have to go down to the corner and call them. Okay. And then they probably didn't pick up the phone and you waited 15 more minutes and then went back to your office and you wasted a half hour yeah. or an hour. Uh, had a big roll of, desk on the, uh, roll of decks on the desk. Um, and technology really changed everything. I remember, I think it must have been 1985 or 86 when uh, the first fax machine mm. came around. That was uh, a service that FedEx had called Zapmail. And essentially what you did is you brought a document to a FedEx office, they would fax it to another FedEx office mm. and then hand deliver it. And that service cost a mere $8 a page okay. at that time. <laughs> that was the first fax machine. And then, you know, we started getting um, computers on the desks and cell phones and everything else. So it's changed dramatically. And interestingly, with technology, people say, well, Bob, technology has made things so much more efficient. Right. There's probably so much more business being done. But interestingly, if you look at sales in New York City, um, there were more buildings sold in the 1980s than mm. in the 1990s, more sold in the 90s than in the noughts, more in the noughts than in last decade. Right. So what, what technology has done is actually made working more efficient for a smaller number of people. So you can do much more business mm. based on technology today. There have been years recently where I've sold 100 buildings in a year. Right. 
in with the technology of the 80s and 90s, it, that would be impossible. So I think you had more people active in the business. Mm. What technology has done is it's shrunk the field of folks who are doing stuff, but each individual is able to do so much more, taking advantage of what technology allows you to do. So it decreased the volume, but made it more possible to reach that kind of high level. Yeah, I don't know that technology reduced the volume. It's just, it's interesting to me that the volume didn't go up. Mm. Um, I just think that the, the lack of transparency in the business because uh, don't forget, one of the reasons why why MK was so successful was because back in those days, publicly available information was like 50% accurate. Right. Uh, today, it's 99% accurate. So if, if we started that company today on the same basis that we started it back then, it wouldn't be nearly as successful. Okay. So we brought a level of transparency to a business that was very opaque. Uh, and so I think based on that opaqueness back then, there were buildings that would sell four times in a year, mm. five times in a year, because people were not aware of what the market really was. Um, and shrewd investors were able to buy a property, resell it right away, then it would be resold again. So I think the volume of sales was was greater because of a lack of transparency. Mm. So as transparency has grown, the number of properties sold has has slowed down mainly because you don't have those repeat sales yeah. of the same property over okay. and over. Yeah, that makes great sense. Great. And uh, what's the recipe for an effective cold call? Oh gosh, well, a, an effective cold call. Number one, don't ask somebody for what you want right away. So we always told our folks, never call up and say, hey, do you wanna sell your building? That property owner gets 10 of those right. a day, probably hangs up on every one of them. Call and offer something. Somebody owns property, they probably want to know what's going on in the market, right. what's happening that's affecting the value of their property. They probably are interested in buying other properties in the neighborhood. So we always would call up and say, hey, we're selling uh, 123 Main right across the street from you. Would you have any interest in it? If yes, you talk about that property and offer it to them and then get around to ask them if they're thinking about selling anything. Right. Or if they're not interested in buying one, two, three main, hey, we just put a report together about what's happening with sales volume and sales values in your neighborhood. Are you interested in mm. receiving that? You always wanna offer something and share something. Uh, and then you, you get around to asking, hey, is there anything in your portfolio you may wanna sell these days? Understood. So provide value upfront and then you can ask for value in return later on. Year, like months down the line. Absolutely. Great. Um, and how did you remain top of mind with clients when you were starting out as a blank slate without being pushy? Staying top of mind is interesting. And that's something that technology has changed right. quite a bit also. But we, we were big believers in the fact that in the real estate business, particularly in private capital, and this doesn't, I think that you could disaggregate the investment sales business into institutional business mm -hmm. and private right. capital business. In the private capital business where you're dealing with individuals, high net worth individuals, families, um, I, I think so much of it revolves around not who you know, but who knows you. Mm. So how do you get known? Mm -hmm. um, you do a heck of a lot of networking. You meet people face to face. You make your phone calls every day. You send out mail. I mean, before email really started to get popular, we, we did a quarterly newsletter all the time with information about what was happening in the market. We got to the point where we were sending out about 3 million pieces of mail every year. Wow. So, you know, our, our mail costs, our mail budget was over a million dollars a year. Wow. Um, and we just 
thought that it was important to make that impression and stay top of mind with people. So people say, well, how effective is mail? You're putting this 10 page report together, sending it out. You know, how many people do you think actually read it? Mm. And I always would say, you know what? It doesn't really matter how many people actually read it because if they pick it up out of their mail and look and say, oh yeah, the knackle guy, okay, boom, throws it in the garbage. I viewed that as success. Right. Because what it did, it planted a seed in their head. Yep. If they're picking up a market report and throwing it out, they probably don't want to sell today. But they remember every month after month, oh, knackle, garbage, no, knackle, garbage. Then the time when, oh my gosh, an event happens that precipitates a need for them to sell. They remember you. The first thing you want to think, oh, let me call that guy who's sending me all the mail. I got to <laughs> call him. I let me, you know, and that's what you want. You want to be top of mind. Because if you think about it, in Manhattan, south of 96th Street, there's 27,649 yeah. buildings. Only 2.6% of that stock trades in the average year on average, which mm -hmm. means when someone buys a property here, they own it for 40 years before they sell it. So they're not interested in doing something all the time. So you want to be on top of mind when they decide they need to make a move. And the only way you do that is by by staying on top of them, mm. sharing information with them, making your calls. And today you're sending emails, you're sending texts, you're sending, we still send a lot of hard mail because I think email has got become diluted with people getting so many emails. Right. Uh, they tend to, you know, at the end of the week, delete, 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 delete. They may mis delete something that they may not have wanted to delete. Right. <laughs> uh, so you, you want to hit people on all fronts and you also want to be face to face with people as much as you can. So networking is a great way to, uh, to stay on top of people. You know, Keith Ferrazzi wrote a great book, Never Eat Alone. Right. Um, so my assistant, uh, Denise, she has a list of people that I say, look, I want to have lunch with somebody every single day. Go through this list. I don't care who it is. Just get people from this list to, to meet with me for lunch, have a drink, have dinner once in a while, that kind of thing. You want to stay, right. keep that relationship with you. Your potential clients. 100%. And as far as when you're working with sellers, how do you uh, bring a seller with insane pricing expectations back down to earth? <laughs> okay. Well, that's that's a great question. I think for the most part, most sellers and and, and deservedly so, they, they all think their property is worth yeah. a little bit more than the market. Um, I think one of the things you always look for as an investment sales broker is what's the motivation of right. the seller? Um, if it is strictly value-based, and that value expectation is not in line with the market, that's not an assignment worth working on. Mm. So I think what we try to do is let the market speak for itself. We always, anybody who's thinking about selling a property, we always put a valuation together. Uh, we try to be very thoughtful about how we put that valuation together um, and use as much market-driven data as possible. We are very meticulous about the comparable sales. I, I sell a lot of land. Mm -hmm. Every land sale in Manhattan, I call the buyer and seller. I know everything about that sale. I know whether there were any bonus programs available, were there tenants that mm. needed to be bought, bought out. Um, and so having a very granular understanding of what you're talking about helps you articulate why the expectation of that seller might be good or might not be mm. so good. Uh, they might say, hey, that property across the street just sold for $500 a foot. Why isn't mine worth that? Well, maybe you don't have uh, the same contextual zoning. Maybe the same bonus programs right. aren't available. Maybe you, you didn't take into account that you have two rent-stabilized tenants in your, your right. site. Um, so an understanding of the market and being able to articulate that. Mm. 
and generally if the in a good market if the seller's expectation is slightly above the market um you may want to undertake that assignment if it's way over the market you don't mm -hmm. um in a declining market like we have today uh you want us to, to look for sellers who are are highly motivated for one reason or another um, but I think you also have to let the market speak for itself. One of the great things about the market in New York is that there is always a clearing price for everything. Right. There may be buildings, great buildings in some markets where under certain circumstances there are no buyers. Right. Um, here there is always a clearing price. And so our job as a broker is to provide options for our clients. So if you have a building and you get 35 offers or 40 offers, which is often the case, mm -hmm. The market has spoken, there's a meaty part of the bell curve, there's a few bids that are lower, there are a couple of bids that are higher. Right. Um, the people at the higher end of the range, one of them is a 1031 buyer, a buyer with new equity, somebody with a different perspective on the market, a frustrated buyer that thought they were buying two other buildings, got outbid at the last right. minute, yeah, I'm yeah. not gonna lose again <laughs> kind of guy. So you, you, you see who those folks are at the top of the pack and you create a competitive bidding environment uh, with those top few folks, and, and generally that ends up getting the job done for Understood. you. But, but letting, letting the market speak is the, the best way to educate a potential seller about what their property's worth. Got it, understood. And what are, what are some questions that buyers often neglect to ask sellers about a building? Um, I don't think there are many these days. Mm -hmm. I, I think that... Uh, I've seen particularly on multifamily properties where, you know, we have this labyrinth of rent regulation policies that, that have to be taken into consideration. I think buyers today are doing more due diligence than I've ever right. seen. Um, so I don't think there are many questions that buyers don't ask. Um, I think that the, uh, the painstaking process they go through to do due diligence today, particularly folks who are in a fiduciary capacity, mm -hmm where they're investing money for others, um, go through an extraordinary amount of due diligence. Right. And I, I don't think there really are questions that are, are unasked today. And what about conversely? Are there, are there questions that sellers uh, neglect to ask buyers? No, I, I, I think that the, the most important thing a seller can do is to really understand what it is they're selling. Right. Um, we will often ask, you know, the, the, the sellers who... Um, will do a property conditions report and do an environmental report. If they're selling a development site, do a massing study. Mm -hmm. It saves time. It saves, saves effort. You may discover an issue that needs to be addressed that takes time that if you wait till the end of the process, yeah. it can screw up your sale. Uh, you know, have you pulled a title report? Mm. Is there a mortgage from 1952 that hasn't been satisfied? You know, it was paid off decades right. ago, but it's still on the record. It might take three months to get that, that resolved. Why do that at the end of the process? Do that at the beginning. So we encourage um, our seller clients, which my, every one of my transactions I've, I've done now, uh, 2,243 sales in New York. Um, in each one of those cases, I was the exclusive agent for the mm -hmm. seller. Uh, and I always encourage the seller, find out as much about your property as you can. You need to know what you're selling. Mm. We need to know what you're selling. If you don't take the time to, to find that out, something's going to pop up right. that's going to create a problem down the line. So the more you do up front, the better it'll be for right. both of us. So it's better to know all the problems up front so that you kind of know what to expect in the future. 
Right, and you may you may be able to solve issues before you get to the critical juncture yeah, in a exactly. transaction. Okay, hundred percent. And what are some creative ways that you've seen owners add value to their buildings? Uh, a number of ways. One is is keeping the right paperwork, and I think that differs product type to product right. type, right? So um, in uh, in retail properties, for instance, know your your tenants' sales figures. Mm. How much are they selling? What is their what is their their what are their sales per foot? What are the things that are going to drive an investor to do right. one thing or another? In the multifamily sector, do you have you filed all your DHCR registrations? Do you have your backup support for MCI increases yeah. and IAI increases uh, on the land side? Uh, you know, do you have uh, you know air tight demolition clauses in your leases. Can right. you really deliver the property vacant? Have you done uh, a geotechnical report to understand what your subsurface conditions mm -hmm. are? In every property type, there are different factors that can make the sale process easier, smoother, and create value. And those, those are all aside from the obvious things of making the property, bringing right, the yeah. property up to code, yeah. uh, improving it, renovations, et cetera. But there are, there are a number of things folks can do to make their property more valuable. Understood. And how do you evaluate a deal? Uh, what, what metrics do you place your value on most? Cap rate, location, potential for value add? Again, that will value, John, um, property type to property type. Depends on, on the transaction. Uh, multifamily properties, you want to look at how the property is performing relative to the market. Mm -hmm. And there's an inverse relationship between upside potential and cap rate. Right. The more upside potential, the lower the cap rate. Uh, in development transactions, you look at comparable sales and you need to know what bonus programs are available, understanding that for development sites, what you pay someone for their land is not as important as what is paid for the maximum amount of building rights you right. can have divided by the total price you paid. And, and so that is the metric that you look at. A developer doesn't care if they're buying three different things, and those things could be two parcels and bonus rights, one parcel and two sets of bonus rights. Uh, all they care about is on a blended basis. If yeah. you take your total price paid divided by your total maximum buildable footage, that tells you how much you're paying. That's what the developer cares about. So mm. you need to know what, how you can improve a property or what, how, how you can maximize the buildable footage to get a sense of what the value should be. Um, in other properties, in office buildings, for instance, uh, is the building appropriate to be converted to an alternative use? Today, mm -hmm. that's a, a very, very big topic. Um, or, you know, you look at each product type differently to try to get a sense of what's most important. And interestingly, uh, like in the multifamily sector, there are four value metrics we look at. Cap rate, gross rent multiple, price per square foot, price per unit. At certain times when the market's great, if one of those four is good, somebody will buy. That's true. Yeah. When the market's bad, if one of those four is bad, they won't buy. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of, not only do you have to look at different metrics, product type to product type, but it's market conditions versus market conditions. The overall and picture. so it, it changes all the time. So there's not one answer to that question. Yeah. I, I hate to always say it depends. I hate when people say it depends because <laughs> it's always a long answer. But the fact is it depends. It depends right. what the circumstances are. 100%, understood. And you mentioned in an interview, a recent interview, that most brokers, when asked about the current market, answer with adjectives. Uh, so you answer with statistics. What are some of these statistics that you rely on to convey the right information to your clients? Right. And again, I think that is 
um, one of the things that that if you're able to articulate your market segment, and we always suggest to people that they specialize. Specialize in one thing. Be an expert at right. one thing. You know, you read Jim Collins' Good to Great. He says, pick, pick the thing in the world that you can be the best in the world yeah. at and know it. And you have to be able to articulate that thing um, very, very well. And the best way to do that is with numbers. I don't want to tell you, if I tell you that the market is really hot, what does that mean to you? That might mean, hey, it's up 3%. Yeah. Or maybe it, it, it could be up 40%. It's relative. So I say if, if you know that the, you know, the market through the first three quarters of this year was on pace to have a dollar volume that was up 38% mm-hmm. versus last year, and the number of properties sold was on pace to be up 13% from last year, that tells you something. Right. And, and so then you can draw your own conclusions as to whether you think that's good, bad, or ugly. Understood. And it also, like when I said to you that south of 96th Street, there's 27,649 buildings, you probably said, oh, hey, this guy knows something about the, the market. Right. So it, it's important to be able to understand these numbers. And the most important thing about the numbers is not so much the absolute numbers, but how the numbers change mm. quarter to quarter, half year to half year, mm. full year to full year. And it's the direction that the numbers are moving on that can help you be very predictive about where the market's going and where opportunities might be in the future. Understood. So it's not so much, you know, to know that in 2014, 5,534 buildings sold, that doesn't really tell you anything. But if you know what the 2013 number was, no trend. and you know what the 2016 number right. was, and then you look at that over 20 years mm-hmm. and you see how it ebbs and flows, it helps you say, you know what, next year I think it's gonna be this and this is the reason why. Right. And those projections have been normally uh, very, very accurate relative to direction of the market. Magnitude is always off a little bit, but they've been very, very um, uh, helpful in terms of de- determining the the direction of the market. Understood. What, what I tell clients is, um, if my family owned the property, this is what I would tell them okay. to do. Okay. And I think that resonates with people. Right. And I think, you know, at this point, I don't think a broker can make somebody sell or discourage them from selling. In the market that we're in today, I'm telling most people not to sell. Mm because I don't think it's an opportune time. I do that for a couple of reasons. One, I really don't think it's the right time to sell uh, unless you have to sell. If you have to sell, I believe that I can get a higher price for the property than anyone else. Uh, So I suggest they hire me, but I'm encouraging people not to sell. It's a way to also determine motivation. If if you really have to sell and I tell you not to, you're going to say, yeah, Bob, I understand, but those are the folks I want to work with today. Um, And I think you have to be as as straightforward as possible i think the the perspective on the market that this is a marathon and not a sprint Mm -hmm. is very very important you know one of the one of the lessons that you learn over time is that honesty and integrity go a long long way you know don't bullshit people tell them the truth tell them pretend that the client are your family members what would you tell them to do what what really do you think is right and i tell you some of the best relationships that i have with people are people who i told not to sell their building 
And you know what, whether it's two years later, five years later, or 15 years later, right. they've come back and said, hey, Bob, you know, you told me not to sell. That was the right move. And I'm impressed that you said that, but now I need to sell. So come on, let's go, let's right. get to it. So, so they kind of see that you're on their team as a broker when you, when you tell them what's their information. Got yeah, it. I think you want to, you, as a, a broker, you have access to a lot of market information and you try to process that information, draw conclusions about how you can advise right. clients. So this is this buzzword that you don't want to be a broker, you want to be a trusted advisor. Right. Well, a trusted advisor is like, you know, a, a sibling giving you advice, right? You're gonna give what you really think is in the best interest. Yeah. So you use everything that you can to try to give the best advice possible to people. And I think that as long as you're honest over the long term, you know, it'll come back in a really great way to you. Great, amazing. And in a recent interview with the Financial Times, you mentioned this concept of zombie buildings. Um, so walk us through what you mean by this and uh, feel free to uh, share any ideas that you uh, that have to mitigate this issue. Sure. Well, what I mean by I was referring to the secondary and tertiary office buildings in the city. As we know, the office sector is, is a little bit challenged right. today based on physical occupancies being very low. A lot of people questioning what their, their strategy is relative to office occupancy. And if you think, as I had said, the average building in New York has been owned for 40 years before it sold. So that means half the buildings are owned for longer than 40 right. years. So there are buildings that have been owned for, for 70, 80, 90 years by, by people. And maybe when they were bought, the two or three partners got together, bought the building. And today there's 42 people getting checks right. from that building. Um, three, four years ago, those checks were pretty big. People were very happy. A lot of those 42 people are very passive. Yeah. Um, and now the checks are getting smaller and smaller and the building hasn't had any improvements to it. It needs a new lobby. It needs new elevators. It needs new windows, new HVAC yeah. system, new bathrooms. And so if you went to that person who had been receiving checks passively for years and years and years and said, oh, by the way, I need to write a check for $500,000 because we need to do all this work to the building, those people probably have a heart attack. Yeah. Uh, so you, um, the building is kind of stuck. It can't rent space because it's not competitive. It, it, it's not competitive because the owner's not willing to put money right. into it. What do you do? They also, because it's been owned for so long, it has a zero tax basis. You'd pay massive taxes if you sold. So I think that owner has to figure out what to do. If the building requires $20 million of capital improvement, do they sell $20 million of equity to right. get somebody to come in? Do they do a 99-year master lease on the building to get somebody to come in and inject that capital to make the building competitive? There's so many different things options that folks have, but letting the building sit there in a disrepaired condition and not attract tenants is not a business plan. Understood. And how can the government intervene uh, to help with the repurposing of class C and class, C, uh, class D office buildings? Well, I think there is a, a huge uh, opportunity to solve an affordable housing yeah. problem. Uh, as well as help the office market. If you look at the office market in New York, we went into the pandemic with about 25 million feet vacant. Right. There's currently about 27 and a half million feet of office under construction. Uh, and I should say that office that's under construction, class A new office space is doing tremendously yeah. well. Like I think you could build a new office building on Avenue D today and it would get triple digit rents. Right. Um, and then if aggregate office demand drops by 10%, 
which is a conservative estimate. That's another 50 million feet. So mm. we could easily have 100 million feet of office space empty. Yes. What's the solution? Well, to convert older obsolete office buildings, which again, even if you renovate them, it's hard to change ceiling heights in a building. It's hard to take columns out. You can't do that stuff. So conversion to alternative uses is a, a solution. If you look at downtown in the financial district, prior to 9-11, there were about 1,800 dwelling units downtown mm -hmm. in the financial district. Today, they're close to 30,000 units. Those were all catalyzed by the 421G tax mm -hmm. abatement program. I think the city should implement a 421G tax abatement program to induce the conversion of office buildings that, yeah. to residential, have a big affordable housing component. If they didn't wanna do a 421G type right. of program, provide very, very low cost uh, loans, 1% mm. uh, interest loans to owners to convert, convert buildings yeah. to other uses and keep the taxes yeah. where they are. There's political ramifications of all of this stuff but to provide the private sector with an inducement to, to act is very, very stimulative. And the private sector will do anything that they're incentivized to do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the example after example of, of how the private sector has reacted to, uh, to inducements. Right, okay. And how important are politics in the real estate game? Uh, what advice would you give a young commercial real estate professional navigating things like politics if it's out of their control? Well, the, I've, I've never seen politics and business, politics and real estate more closely correlated. Mm. And I think it's important for, for everyone uh, in the real estate business to become politically aware. Mm. A lot of our, our uh, politicians are not as up to speed on what these policies are and how they impact things. Right. For instance, um, almost every politician will tell you that they want lower rents for people. But yet everything that politicians have done is exerting upward pressure yeah. on rents. <laughs> so they marginalize, let's, let's take a look at the MCI and the IAI program mm -hmm. in multifamily. In the 1970s, there was a 14% dilapidation rate in New York City, meaning 14% of the units were uninhabitable. Um, and people were burning their buildings down and collecting right. insurance money rather than investing in them. Smartly, the city created the MCI program and the IAI program. That was a great financial inducement. And what did the private sector do? It invested tens of billions of dollars in the housing stock such that in 2019, that dilapidation rate was 0.04%. Yeah. So what did you get? You got billions of dollars of investment in the housing stock. You got better living conditions for people. You got better quality of life. There was so many benefits. And the, the rent law changes in June of 2019 marginalized those yeah, programs. Sure. So what has happened? It's not economically feasible to renovate a previously stabilized apartment and rent it. So there are tens of thousands of units that have been nailed yeah. shut. Yeah. So politicians by virtue of doing that constrained supply and exerted upward pressure on rents 421a slash affordable yeah. new york program wasn't renewed there's an air bubble building in the pipeline there are are thousands and thousands of units that could be built on development sites where the site has been vested for mm -hmm. affordable new york but the site won't be able to get a tco by june of 2026 right. when you have to get it to get the benefits extend that 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 expiration period yeah. to 2030, you'd have 15,000 units yeah. coming out of the ground within the next 30 days. 
the so the affordable New York program has basically taken properties that may have been sold mm -hmm. off the market. If if someone owns a big development site in the outer boroughs today, we're telling them don't even think about selling yeah. it. It's not worth it. It's almost worth nothing. Don't put it on the market. Wait for the next program to come around. What happened? Supply is constrained. Upward pressure has been exerted on rent. So you think that that the rent's too high? Blame your local politician. Yeah. They're the ones who did it. And yet they'll say, well, we want rents to be lower. E even if you believe that an Econ 101 textbook is capitalist propaganda, just look at the real life example yeah. of the pandemic. Vacancies shot up. There was an oversupply. What happened? Rents dropped 30%. You want rents to go down, add to the supply, create inducement for Incentives. people to build apartments. Yeah. Part of the problem is that if, if a politician approves 1,500 new units in their district, that could be 2,500 people moving yeah. in that don't know them, may not vote for right. them. Right. So is it self-preservation or is it doing the right thing That's a good for the community? Yeah. And we, you want to solve the, the rent problem, the affordability problem, just create more supply. The 12 FAR density cap yeah. on residential should be changed to 16 or 18. Yeah. That the state has to do that. Yeah. That's not a city thing. But that's another thing that would add, it would, it would increase property values. Property values go up. People will sell to mm -hmm. take advantage of that. That puts another development site in play. More, more. Um, buildings are going to be built, right. jobs are created, tax revenue goes up. What's wrong with this? Right. It's like you, you couldn't be more commonsensical than doing these things, but yet they're not done. 100%. So there, there are so many things. If you, if you focused on the, um, on the supply side of things, it would be so much better for everyone. So if politicians really put their personal interests aside and kind of focused on uh, increasing the supply, that would really solve the problem? It's Econ 101. Yeah. 100%. And uh, as far as for property owners, how can property owners navigate uh, government intervention with their property tax bill? Uh, because the government may decrease the tax rate, but simultaneously increase the property tax ass assessments. Well, that's the, the game that politicians play, right. is they say, on one hand, they'll say, oh, we're going to not increase taxes. Well, then, so that means <laughs> the tax rate is staying the same. But then they give the elbow and the ribs tax to the assessment. Department of Finance, they jack all the assessments yeah. up. Um, it, it's an issue. The, the tax system in New York is a very, very, very challenging right. thing uh, to deal with. Uh, the tax burden is, is misallocated yeah. um, and needs to be uh, distributed in a more equitable way. Mm -hmm. uh, it needs work. And based on some interaction that we have. I sit on the executive committee at the Real Estate Board of New York. We meet with politicians all the time. Um, and based on some of the interesting conversations we've had with mayors in the last year of their uh, mayoralty, where you know they would be term limited out, they weren't gonna be able to run again, it didn't really matter what they do. Right. Those folks at that time even said, you know what, I can't tackle that issue. I think it's a really, really challenging thing, mm -hmm. but it, it needs to be um, revamped in a very significant way. And um, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Got it. Understood. And how is it that top line revenue uh, has been going up in New York, but NOI has remained stagnant? 
Well, I think there are a number of reasons for that. And again, you have to look property type to property type. Um, I think uh, top line revenue has not been going up in every product sector. Um, I think expenses are going uh, going up. Uh, You look at what has happened to insurance. Insurance prices have doubled and tripled. Water and sewer is going up. Real estate taxes are going up. You know, I mentioned, I, I don't know if I mentioned on this podcast, um, that you know some owners of, of secondary tertiary office buildings are renting space for thirty dollars a foot. Mm. That barely covers taxes and operating, and mm-hmm. that's the same rent that it was twenty years yeah. ago. But twenty years ago, taxes were a third of what yeah. they are Expenses today. Went up since then. So I, I think it's, you it, it's very hard to lump all of the the market into one bucket when it comes to that dynamic between gross revenue and net income. I think it varies very widely, product type to product type. Understood. Got it. And um, I want to understand for a new, uh, a young investment sales broker, why is specialization so important? Well, I think specialization is important because you want to become a market expert. Right. Well, how do you bring value to somebody, right? And think about if you if you needed to have uh, surgery on your ankle, yeah. uh, do you want to go to a doctor that does surgery on elbows, ears, ankles, you knees? You want a guy who does has done 10,000 ankle surgeries yeah. and then you have a good sense that you're going to have a he successful outcome. Yeah. In the same way, you want someone who can articulate what their specialty is. That specialty allows you to differentiate yourself right. from the tens of thousands of people that are trying to do what you're doing. And that ability to differentiate yourself is what creates a competitive advantage. 100%. And what do you look for in a new hire? Uh, always look for, for someone who is, um, a, a PhD, okay. <laughs> uh, poor, hungry, and driven. Okay. Uh, no, it's, uh, it, we, we look for people, the real estate business is a very, very competitive business. Right. So, uh, we always found that, uh, competitive team sports is a great place to find people, uh, folks who have exhibited some excellence in their background. They were captain of the, of the debate team mm-hmm. or publisher of the school newspaper or, you know, something where they achieved some some excellence in their background. Um, and uh, just people who are good people. You know, I think actually that there's an opportunity to create a college curriculum uh, to teach people in a, you know, I took an accounting class. I forget whether prepaid rent is an asset, a liability, a debit credit, whatever. But um, to to teach people how to be likable right. is a tremendous, tremendous thing. I think it's totally underrated. Yeah. People work with who they they like and who they know. And I think on an aptitude scale, right. zero being someone who knows nothing, 10 being someone who could calculate IRs in their head, yeah. you can't get through life as a three or a four in this business. You, but you can be a seven or an eight, but if people really like you, they're gonna wanna work with you. 100%. So I think, uh, you know, we always told our, our HR director, we don't care what somebody's um, uh, academic background as is, your GPA. Likable. Meet with them, sit with them. If after you've talked to them for a while, you didn't feel like, hey, I want to go out and have lunch with this person. Yeah. I want to go grab a beer with this person. You can't offer them a job. Right. And that worked really well. So competitive nature, excellence in the background, very personable, likable, right. 
those are the qualities that I think uh, help someone to succeed. And then, of course, it takes uh, a great work ethic and discipline. You know, we always just say to be successful in commercial real estate, you only have to work half a day. Right. We don't care what 12 hours you work. You got to work 12 hours a day. <laughs> uh, and you have to have the discipline to do the, the sometimes mundane things that we have to do yeah. day after day, week after week, month after month. But uh you know, this is a great, great business. And I, I think, um, you know, the, the ability to succeed in it is fantastic um, and just takes uh, takes focus. Right, 100%. And as far as these, like, teaching these people skills, do you think persuasion should be taught in educational setting? I absolutely do. I think uh, the, uh, the number one expert on persuasion in the United States is a guy named uh, Bob Cialdini okay. at University of Arizona. Um, uh, Bob has written several books on persuasion. And if you read his books, some really interesting things on a uh, little tiny things that can be done right. to make people do one thing or another. And if you think about it, what, what does a salesperson do? A salesperson's whole objective is to get the switch inside a client's head to either go to yes or, no. or to no. Yeah. How do you do that? You do that by influence, persuasion, mm. knowledge, um, trust. Uh, th there are things that go into it, but understanding psychology. I read a lot of books. I read about, about selling, about psychology, persuasion, um, uh, a lot of things that impact the rationale why people do what they do. Mm. And I think that should be a whole college curriculum, believe yeah, it or not. Because I think that people who... Um, who possess those qualities have a much higher uh, probability of success See, yeah. than those who don't. 100%. And is there such thing as a work-life balance uh, for someone at the top of the industry like yourself? <laughs> well, um, I will tell you the work-life balance is the secret to life. Mm. And that work-life balance is different for everybody. Right. Um, you know, I think we, we all try to balance our careers, uh, our personal life, our friends, our family, uh, our health, uh, our faith. Right. Um, and again, that, that balance is different for everybody. And I think it also is different at different points in our life. Right. Um, you know, if you're starting your career, you don't have uh, a spouse, you don't, have, uh, you don't have children, you can spend more time working. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, I, I feel truly blessed because selling buildings for me is not only a career, it's my hobby. Right. I love doing it. I, I have a fantastic wife. My wife, Cynthia, is very, very understanding. She understands my passion for this business. Right. Um, and so I, I still work seven days a week. I hate to say it. On the weekends, I try to work at times when my wife and daughter are not, uh, not around because I want to spend time with them. Um, but, um, you know, I... I if you really, really love something, and I tell young people this all the time, yeah. expose yourself to as many things as you can. Find out what you're truly passionate about. And when you have the passion for something, that will enable you to get to the top of that mm. industry. Mm -hmm. It's not about don't pick a career because you think you can make a lot of yeah. money. I had a lot of friends from Wharton that went to Wall Street. Yeah. Five or six years later, they were out of there and they just were burnt out. They were mm. working 120 hours a week and you know just crazy, crazy work schedules. Um, and I, I think you want to find what you really love, because no matter what you what you do or how good you are at it, you're going to face challenging times. Right. 
And when you face those challenging times, what's going to allow you to push through that wall is the passion for yeah. the business. Liking and it. if you're passionate about it and you um, are then able to stick to it during the tough times, that will allow you to get to the top of it. And if you get to the top of anything, whether it's selling real estate or um, art, poetry, teaching, music, if you get to the top of any industry, you're going to make a lot of money. That's so uh, if you love what you do, uh, you'll have the passion to get through the tough times. You'll end up making a lot of money. You'll have a, have a great life. Uh, but it's really important to try to find what is that you really, really love doing. And uh, that's, that's one of the keys to a happy life, I think. Amazing. That's amazing. And so, Bob, you've closed over $20 billion in sales over the course of your career. Myself and all my viewers dream of becoming what you've become. What daily habits should young professionals enact into their lives to make this dream a reality? Wow, John, that's a, that's a tough question. I think um, uh, number one, um, specialize, mm -hmm. you know, be, be able to go in and create a reason why that client uh, has to hire you. Mm -hmm. um, always do the right thing by people. Um, remember that it's a marathon, not a sprint, that, you know, do the right thing always. I mean, it sounds kind of corny, but the fact is, do the right thing, never do the wrong thing. I think even though um, the market is so big in New York, it's a very small place. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we were always very, very cognizant of was that your reputation is everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, be nice to people, do the right thing, be friends with people, help people out when they need help particularly when they're having tough times. Um, give the advice that you would give your family. Um, you know, have, have discipline. Uh, realize that, you know, you have to get in a rhythm. Mm. And so when, when you do things over and over again, it becomes a habit. When it becomes a habit, it's easy to do. Yeah. Uh, take care of yourself. Um, you know, it's, uh, you want to be around doing it as long as you can. So, uh, realize your health is important. I think for those, uh, for those folks who are faithful, uh, be true to your faith, yeah. you know, go to church, go to synagogue, do what yeah. you need to do. I think that helps greatly with work-life balance. Um, and, uh, just, you know, try to be a good person, give back to your community. You know, one of the best things you can do, I think, if, if you want to create a blueprint for your work-life balance right. um, and to figure out what your priorities are is go through the exercise of having uh, a family member, a friend, uh, someone you work with, someone from your, your church or synagogue, um, write an obituary for you, mm. but you write it. Mm. You write what you want your friend to write about you when you die. Okay. You write what the person you sit next to in church write about you when you die. Okay. Have someone who, uh, a friend that you uh, went to grade school with write about you when you die. Right. And if you go through that process, what you are doing is actually creating a blueprint for your life, mm. for the way you want to live your life and what you want to be. It's a very, very profound and impactful thing to do. But I think you want to know what you should be focused on every day to get where you want to get to write those obituaries. Right. And that's going to give you a line by line blueprint of the way you want to live your life every day. So if you start your career off thinking about what you would want to be remembered for, it'll kind of set you up better. Absolutely. Understood. And what idea do you believe about a specific market or asset class uh, that many people you respect disagree with you on? 
Hmm, that is a great question. Um, I've never been asked that. Um, hmm. I would say that there are a number of very, very smart people uh, that say that um, tax policy does not impact market participant behavior. Mm. Um, and I think that that could not be further from the truth. Mm. Uh, I believe that if you look at uh, the history of sales in, in Manhattan, um, of the six top years in which we had the highest sales volumes over the last 40 years, four of them were precipitated by changes in tax law. Mm. So I believe that people are cognizant. And I, I mean, I taught my, my daughter Sophie's 14 years old and I was teaching her um, about taxes. And I said to her, Sophie, you, if you we were having ice cream together, I said, if you were selling these ice cream cones, yeah. would you rather sell the ice cream cone for $9 or $10? Yeah. And she said, $10, dad. And I said, no, the, the answer is it depends. If you sell the ice cream cone for $9 and you pay $3 in taxes and yeah. you're left with six, that's better than selling the ice cream cone for $10, right. paying five in taxes and being left with five. That makes sense. Because all you care about is what you're left with at the end of the day. And so she kind of got it and yeah. now she understands taxes. But tax policy, particularly within the real estate industry, maybe maybe in the corporate world, one, one of the big, you know, the oracles of, of the equities market has said that tax policy does not impact market participant yeah. behavior. And maybe in the, I don't know anything about the equities world, maybe it's true in the equities world, but in the real estate world, tax policy has a profound right. impact on, uh, on market participant behavior. And I, I've never been asked that question, but that was, that was a good one. That's a very interesting answer. Um, and in what situations in business do you listen to your gut and intuition more than, more than you'd use logic and reasoning? Um, sometimes I think on, on whether to, um, whether to participate in an event. Um, I do a lot of networking mm. and my coach, I have a broker coach, Rod Santamassimo from the Massimo Group, unbelievably great guy. Uh, one of my best friends now. Um, and he always says, Bob, think about what your ROI is. Mm. ROI being return on involvement. Oh, okay. So if I'm going to go to a particular event, what is the return I'm likely to get out of that? And there are times when I say, gee, you know, should I really, should I go to that one? It's, you know, it's going to take me an hour to get there. Or, you know, is it really, who am I going to meet there? Uh, and then sometimes I just feel like, you know what, I, I think I should go and I end up meeting somebody that I do business with. So I think those are times when it's easy to talk yourself out of doing right. things, but sometimes you just have a feel, you know what, maybe I should go and we'll see do what happens. So yeah. I, I guess that's probably it. Understood. Okay. That's great. And, um, who do you learn from at this point in your career? Well, my coach. Rod Santamassimo is a great, great teacher. And, you know, it, it's so wonderful being coached by, by him or I think any coach because 
you know, he's getting best practices from people all over the country. Mm. Look, I've done very, very well, sold a lot of buildings, but I don't know everything. I, there are new things happening. People are devising new ways all the time yeah. to, to prospect, to cold call, to put marketing materials together, to get in touch with a client base. And nobody knows everything. Yeah. So you want to constantly be learning. So um, given that his practice is, is uh, not more than nationwide, in Northern Hemisphere, right. uh, he's getting best practices from everybody out there. And, um, you know, that is a, a great way to learn. Uh, I still love talking to a lot of uh, the, um, I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but kind of the old timers who have been around for a long time uh, and for years. It's one of the, the downfalls, actually. One of the things I regret uh, is that earlier in our careers, Paul and I never would seek out older people mm. to ask for advice. Uh, we did everything by trial and error, consequently made thousands of mistakes, thousands of mistakes, uh, didn't make a lot of them twice. Um, but I wish we had asked people sooner for advice. Um, you know, after about 12 years, 14 years of, of the company, we started an advisory board, had a lot of um, older statesmen that were on that advisory board that gave us great advice. And I, I just love talking to people who have been around, been through many cycles, seen a lot of things. Uh, there's always the ability, no matter what, there's always the ability to do better, always the ability to improve, always the ability to learn. Um, and I think that's what, what keeps you going is you're constantly figuring out new ways to do things and, um, you learn from people and, you know, I learn a lot. I talked about learning from, from people who have a lot of experience. I learn from people who don't have that much experience. Right. Yeah. Uh, I love talking to people and hearing how they do things. Technology has never been a big thing for me. I'm glad I get my phone on in the morning. Um, but I love, uh, talking to younger people who use all this new technology and everything. And, you know, you, uh, you can learn a heck of a lot if you ask a lot of questions. That's great. That's awesome. And, uh, Bob, you're 40 into the business and you're still talking to, I think I remember from an interview, 114 owners a week. Uh, what does retirement look like for you? Uh, I will never retire. <laughs> Great. Uh, I talk for a living. It's not manual labor. It's relatively easy to do as long right. as my voice works. Uh, and I've, I've said for, for several years now that when they put me in the ground, I'll have deals under contract. <laughs> I truly believe that. Um, but I truly, truly love this. I, I, I will never retire. Um, awesome. And uh, again, I feel truly blessed that I stumbled into this this industry that I love so much. That's awesome. That's amazing. And I have my final question to wrap it up. What advice would you give your 22-year-old self about life, business, and relationships? Oh, boy, that could take an hour. Um, <laughs> I think just be true to yourself. Okay. Um, you know, maintain, have, have a set of core values. Always stick to your core values while being able to adapt to changing circumstances. So you have to be a little bit nimble, but you never get away from your core set of values. Mm. Um, always be a good person, never hurt people, help people. And I, I think that if you behave that way, good things will come back mm. to you. And um, you know, just always do the right thing. Amazing. Do the right thing. You, you, you will never get in trouble by doing the right thing. Absolutely. Definitely. Bob, thank you again for doing this. I really appreciate it. There's so much value to be gained from this and young professionals can apply this to their career moving forward. Thank you again. John, it was great to be here with you. Amazing.